Welcome everyone. Would you just take another moment as we've just sung, just to, uh, along with the Riddells who lit the first Advent candle this evening, the candle of hope, would you maybe just quiet yourself and pray and just say, Jesus, would you be my hope in this situation? And so, Lord, as we think of places that are places of anxiety, that are places of fear, that are places of a longing, we turn to you, our living hope, our God. Thank you for this moment. Thank you for this time. Thank you for these people that you have gathered and knit together by your spirit. Bless us through Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, welcome to Providence Community Church, folks. I'm glad to be here. Uh, I hope you had a good Thanksgiving week, but I want to tell you it's already time, and I want to wish you a happy new year. Happy new year. Yes. Happy New Year because tonight we celebrate the first week of Advent. Technically, most other churches would celebrate tomorrow, which is Sunday, but we'll celebrate with other people in other time zones and say that it's New Year, it's the new year for the church because Advent is the season that begins the Christian year. And Advent is a season of waiting. Advent is a season of hope and it's a season of light. It begins a cycle in the Christian year called the cycle of lights. So we have the season of Advent that kicks things off, Happy New Year. And then we have Christmas. Then after Christmas, we have Epiphany, and it all finds at a symbol, at its focus, light. Light in the darkness. Christ, who is the light of the world, has shone into our hearts, into our worlds, into our darkness. And so, Happy New Year. So, With this church, Advent means another thing. It's not just a new year and a new season, a season of light. It is a season in which we look beyond ourselves as a church and we choose to follow Jesus and his kingdom and say, how do we invest not just in more stuff, but how do we invest in the kingdom of God? So historically in this church, we've done Advent campaigns and this year is no different. And this year, what we're doing, what we're focusing on is the kingdom partnerships that God has already brought together. And so we look at those places, those contacts, those evidences of where God has brought people and ministries into our path and into our hearts where we can look beyond ourselves and create an exponential work that we couldn't do ourselves. And so I hope you got a handout. That handout is uh, referring to a talk that we had last week. And if you go to our website, you won't find it. If you go to iTunes, you won't find it. If you are a member of our church and you go to Cobblestone, you will find it. So I encourage you, if if you're looking at this handout, which is a breakdown of the uh, dollars that we're giving in partnership with other ministries and it doesn't make sense to you, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to last week's talk on our Cobblestone website. And if you have any questions or don't have access to Cobblestone, please don't hesitate to ask me, uh, Pastor Bud or Pastor Drew, and we'll be happy to tell you all about it. Because the way the New Testament works is this rapid expansion beginning with the power of the Holy Spirit in dwelling and knitting together a group of disciples. And you see them being witnesses to the risen Jesus. 
And it began, as Acts 1-8 says, in Jerusalem and it spread to region and it spread internationally. And so that's why you see that local focus, that regional focus, and that international focus. We introduced these ministries to you last week. And this week and in the weeks to come, Lord willing, we're going to highlight each of these and tell you a bit more about the partnership that God has brought our way and how we can increase our kingdom work. So tonight we're talking about our calling. Our calling is a local ministry, and you'll see there on the sheet, we're not giving dollars this year, we're giving clothes. We're giving um, clothes, we're giving blankets. Already, this church has given upwards of 20 garbage bag fulls, the big kind, so like 20, 30 shirts in each. You gave dozens of coats, you've given dozens of blankets already. And so kudos, thank you church, because we took many of those to uh, Thanksgiving, a ministry with our calling this past week. So let me tell you about our calling because several of us in this church included the, the Dallas Missional Community, the Garland Missional Community, have had um, presence, have ministered with this homeless ministry here in Dallas. And so those of you who haven't been have helped by giving money, by giving stuff. So as you prepare to receive all these clothes for Christmas, perhaps, it's a good time to clear out your closets and give it to those as the weather gets cold. But let me tell you more about Our Calling. Our Calling, this is what they do. This is from their website. We build personal relationships with homeless friends in order to see life change. Our calling exists to glorify God by leading homeless people to Christ and by making disciples on the streets. If you talk to Pastor Wayne, who's the director of this ministry, he'll tell you there are great places that feed homeless folks really well. They've got that down, the soup kitchens. You talk to Wayne, he'll tell you that there are great shelters, or at least functional shelters, where they can get in off the street and they can sleep at night. But what our calling does is partner with those places, but provide a safe place where people can come and they can learn about Jesus. Yes, they get coats and blankets, just as you've given to them. Yes, they do get a meal. Yes, they do get socks. And yes, they do have a place where they can wash their clothes. But our calling is a cafe set up to where you can go and you can sit and you can have a cup of coffee and they have mentors and volunteers to sit and listen. To sit and listen. Our calling does things by making disciples on the street, as they say, like having Bible studies. They have Bible studies, one of which is on Monday mornings. I know Aaron has driven a bus for one of those Bible studies. And right now my wife Amy and people like Natalie Vaughn have been helping serve in the women's Bible study on Monday mornings. And the number one prayer request is that they would have a friend. Their number one prayer request is that they would have someone to listen to. And so what they do at these Bible studies is they look at God's word. Amy's taught, she's in the rotation, she's helped with breakfast, but there are other godly women who are there to mentor them. They volunteer to walk alongside them. Does this sound like making disciples? Yes. And spending time with people, looking and pushing people back to Jesus. That's the distinctive of our calling. And so our calling, their goal, they said to lead homeless people to Christ and then make disciples on the streets. And he says, look, it's hard to follow Jesus when you live behind a liquor store or in the woods or you don't have socks or shoes. But guess what? I think I said this last week. It's also hard to follow Jesus when we live in Garland and have a house 
but they're showing them in their context how to make good choices, follow Christ. Their website, they continue, this is what they do. The needs are complex, but the solution is simple. Dysfunction is the disease and Jesus is the cure. I can get an amen to that. He says, we want people to know that the chains of poverty and dysfunction can be broken and that a sustainable lifestyle is not beyond reach. The reason we talk about our calling tonight is not just because we started with a local ministry that we've had a kingdom partnership with. We start because that sentence right there, that they need to know that the chains of poverty and dysfunction can be broken and that a sustainable lifestyle is not beyond reach is to me a sentence of hope. And it's a sentence of hope because there are people in this ministry that have had a radical encounter with Jesus and their lives have been changed. So I want you to meet Deanna. Let's look at this video. My name is Deanna Hamilton and this is my story. I grew up in Dallas uh, as a small child in, in Mesquite. We moved from Mesquite to uh, Paris, Texas. Um, I went through a lot of abandonment issues with my father and my mother because they kept passing me back and forth and and, and got to where I didn't trust people. Um, we moved to Garland, and I went to attended Garland High School. My dream was to become a, a computer tech and travel the world working for Apple Computer, uh, working on computers. That was my dream. That's what I wanted to do. I was 16 when I started using drugs. Started out just smoking marijuana, and then it went from that to drinking. From drinking, it went to heroin, and from heroin, it took, it went into uh, crack cocaine. Uh, it was it was not an easy road to travel. I ended up running away at the age of 16, and stayed out on the streets for a couple of weeks, and turned around and um, met up with my mom for the first time uh, since I was three and moved in with her and she took me to Corpus Christi and I stayed in Corpus Christi for eight years where I had my kids and then I moved back to Dallas and was married, was doing fine, had everything, started using drugs, lost it all, lost the home, the car, my kids. The mistakes that I made caused me to lose the dreams that I had. first time I was put in prison I had a lot of anger and, and, it, and it was horrible and I, I didn't even like who I was because the anger was so deep. I was able to pray that night and I got down on my knees and I asked God to remove that, that feeling I was having and how much I hated myself because I couldn't stand being in my own skin and the next morning it was like bam it just it went away. Jesus is the Messiah, the one that came to earth to give people a way of a way to get out of away from their sins. I didn't have any more anger. I actually sat down and wrote him a letter telling him that I apologized for my part of our marriage not working and that I hoped that he could forgive me and that we could move on from this. Our calling has played a great role in my life in the last year 
started attending Monday Bible studies and was able to get more of the Word of God in me and it, and it just intensified the, my, my goal now is just to be able to help some people out here to get over their struggles and, and give up the things that are bad for them and be able to give back to them what was given to me. I love my mentor. I'm, I'm just going to say it that way because she's a wonderful woman who teaches me the Word of God. Um, Wayne, wonderful man, wonderful man. He makes me feel like I can, I can make it now and, and, and can depend on God to take care of the rest of it and, you know, do my part, but let God also help. I have not liked being out here for the last 18 months. It's not something I would want any, even my enemy to have to go through this because it's a horrible feeling. It can really drag you down. It can make you feel bad about yourself. But God had a way of turning around and touching me and telling me there's people out here you can reach. Just talk to them. God has turned around and, and has touched me in a way that I, I, I just I can't, I can't explain it. It's just a, 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 a joyful feeling. All I can say is that since I've been at our calling, my eyes and my heart have been opened up to be receptive of God's Word on a daily basis. Amen. Amen. Well, if you're like me, a lot of times we look at certain people or maybe we look at people on the street and we say, man, that seems like a pretty hopeless situation. And the good news is that Jesus is in the business of transforming us. And so Amy knows Deanna. She's spent a lot of time with her because Deanna, if you noticed, wore a shirt that says, our calling, volunteer. So she gave her life to Jesus. She has given back. She said that in the video. She's been mentored. She's been shown the way of Jesus. And she's up there at that building from the time it opens till the time it closes. She's the right-hand woman at the kitchen preparing lunch. And Amy tells me lots of stories about how she, shall we say, doesn't take any bull from people. She's a, and God has redeemed it and used it for his glory because she sees right through a lot of this bull and just tell me about Jesus and let's, let's rock and roll. And so these stories may look hopeless, but they're not without hope because Jesus is about giving us hope. And so what's really cool about Deanna is she came in for resources, she came in for clothes, but she found Jesus. She found the way of Jesus. So I just want to remind you this first week of Advent that um, thank you already for the clothes, the shoes, and things like that. If you're going through your closets and cleaning room and you're uh, decorating for Christmas, uh, bring your stuff and leave it here and we'll take it and we'll help people like Deanna and so many others. So let's pray for our calling and then uh, let's talk a bit more about hope, okay? Father, we're so grateful for your love, for your creation, for those who are made in the image of you. So Lord, we thank you for life change and for transformation. May we not be so surprised, but may we be grateful because of an awareness that you are in the business of transforming and redeeming. So Lord, we pray for those who are sleeping outside. We pray for those who are shackled by the chains of poverty and addiction and hate, of mental illness, we pray that your light would break into the darkness.
and bring healing and restoration. We pray that as we give our stuff, it would lead to more and more opportunities for you to work. And that maybe we could hear one day, Lord, that you were naked and we clothed you. So we thank you so much for these opportunities. Bless us. Amen. Well, as I said before, Advent is a season of waiting. And waiting's tough. Waiting's tough, especially because Christmas is right around the corner. But Advent is about waiting. It's not about let's just get ready and meditate on Christ's birth. Because that's Christmas. So we've got Advent. And Advent is a season of waiting. It's waiting for, to celebrate the first coming. That word Advent means coming. The first coming of Christ when he put on flesh and was born in a manger. And then what we do is we look ahead and we wait for his second Advent. The time where he comes back not as a baby, but as the true and rightful reigning Lord of heaven and earth who comes to bring new creation, new life, and the judgment that sets things right and back in balance. So we wait, we wait, we wait. But what happens when we wait? I think there's a few things that happen when we wait. We can get excited at best. You know this. You're excited because of that vacation or that day off or for this last period to be over in school. Or you can put yourself back when you were a kid and you're waiting for that Ninja Turtle action figure or that bike or whatever girls like to play with. You're waiting and waiting can produce excitement. That's at its best. But waiting can also, you know this, cause us frustration. We can get anxious. I don't think about Christmas presents or vacation. I think about the doctor's office. Because you're waiting and you're saying they're always late. They're always backed up. Why aren't they oriented to my schedule? And then you're even super more anxious because you're waiting to go get picked and prodded by the doctor and that's no fun. So waiting at the doctor's office is not good. It's not fun. And what happens then if we wait too long? What happens if you walk into the doctor's office and you're not waiting for 30 minutes, you're waiting for 30 days? That's a terrible doctor. You need to get a new doctor. That's a bad example. What happens when we wait too long? You begin to feel despair. You begin to feel like Emma when I tell her, you know, um, you can't watch a show until you clean up your toys. And she picks up one toy and she says, come on, I already did it. She's two and a half years old and she's always anxious and full of despair. Pray for me as a parent. She despairs and she says things, you know, she's thinking in her little mind or when she grows up, she says, it's never gonna happen. It's never gonna happen. If you're this person, I keep waiting for this. I keep waiting for that. I keep waiting for this situation or this person to, to come and apologize. And you can wait and wait and wait and wait and wait and wait. And it can produce despair in your life, despair in your heart. And Christians, unfortunately, as hard as it is, are called to be people of hope, not despair. So even as we wait, and Advent is the discipline of waiting, as we wait, we wait with hope, with expectancy. And we identify as God's people today, with God's people throughout history, like Israel, waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for God to do what he says he's going to do. We put ourselves and identify with Israel, who keeps saying, send the Savior, or King, deliver us. 
Rescue us. God, rescue us. And sometimes that rescue comes and is immediate. We looked at our series in Jonah a couple series ago. And Jonah was moments from drowning and God provides a fish. And he didn't have to wait really long at all. In one breath, in one bubble underwater, boom. But if you're Israel, as a collective people, who have been waiting and ruled by other people, who have been kicked out of their land, who have been kicked out of their place, they're waiting. And so we look at one of these great Advent texts like Isaiah 9, chapter 2. And he speaks of Israel, and in particular, the northern part of Israel, the part where Jesus will come from. And Isaiah gives a prophecy to a people who have waited and waited and waited and waited and waited. And he says things like, the people who have walked in a land of darkness, on them light has shined. The people who have dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has dawned. And so there's these moments as God's people where when the waiting feels like forever and the waiting feels like despair, even in the midst of our deepest darkness, even in the midst of looking at these situations and waiting and thinking nothing will ever change, we wait for the light to break in to darkness. We wait for God to move and operate. We're not waiting because we're blindly optimistic. We're waiting because hope has an object. Blind optimism is just a state of mind. Blind optimism says, well, today stunk, but I don't know, I'm a happy person and tomorrow will be better. And really there's nothing objective to go off of. That's blind optimism. Hope, the kind of hope that God's people are called to in waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting, even in the midst of darkness. Hope has an object. And for us, the object is the risen Christ. Hope has an object and it is the risen Christ. And so, we don't even have to identify with Israel for too long. We can look at the darkness today. We can look at the darkness this last week. We can look at the riots in Ferguson. We can look at all the burnt up police cars lined up in a row in the aftermath of the night of darkness, right? And we can say, this land of ours, home of the free, amen, is still riddled with injustice. I'm not making a political stance. I'm saying the reality is there is no perfect justice until Christ, who is the object of our hope, comes and gives us perfect justice. So Advent is very much, very much for today, very much for this present darkness. And it's very much for you, ordinary folk like me, who may not have a darkness like the streets of Ferguson, but we can have a darkness in our bedrooms, in our hearts, in our families, in our relationships, and a darkness when we look out at the world and wait. But we must wait with hope. We're called to be a people of hope. But watch, we don't ignore the darkness. Jesus didn't ignore the darkness. We wait for God's light in the face of that darkness. So let's look, us ordinary folk, at someone who is waiting in the darkness. And we're gonna look in the Gospel of Luke, chapter one. So if you have your Bibles or your phones, get to Luke, chapter one. We're gonna look at a long story of a guy and a gal, a family in need of some hope. A family who had been waiting in darkness, who trusted their God, who loved their God, but had been in a tough situation. So we look at their life and 
I believe we find lessons in hope. All right, if you're there, we're going to start in verse 5. Luke gives that brief introduction about what he's after. He doesn't say the name of Jesus yet. That's what's interesting. Luke doesn't say the word Jesus for like the first 30-some verses. He's going to start even beyond Jesus because he's going to teach us how to wait. Thank you, Luke. So let's start in verse 5. This is a family in need of hope. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. So look back, we've got a guy named Zechariah, and Zechariah is a priest, and it says that he's a part of the priestly division of Abijah, and so what is this division all about? See, in this time, with priests, Jewish priests, there was a lot of priests, and so they were broken down into 24 divisions. There was lots and lots of priests, 24 divisions worth We find this in uh, the Chronicles, in the books of history. This is how God has ordered his people Israel. So Zechariah is one of these priests in the 24 division. And there's lots of priests, but there's only one temple. There's only one temple. And so then we're introduced not just to Zechariah the priest, we're introduced to his wife Elizabeth. And she was also a descendant of Aaron. Aaron, of course, was that great priest in the Old Testament. And so this was a double power couple. This would be on TMZ or People Magazine. It's like the Prince and Kate. Is it Prince William? Why did I just blank on that? I should have picked somebody else. It's a power couple. You've got a priest and you've got a descendant of a priest. So they're super blessed, right? So not only this, what does the text tell us about these two? Verse six, both of them were what? Righteous in the sight of God. They stood rightly. They were good, godly people. And they observed all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. So Luke is setting up the scene and he's introducing us to this family. But I told you that this is a family in need of hope, didn't I? Why would I say such a thing? Because you look at the power couple. You've got a holy priest and you've got a holy woman. But there was something that was missing There was something, even though they were righteous and blameless, Luke tells us in verse 7, but they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. Now to us, in these places and women, I can't presume to know how that feels. And it's a sting and and a difficulty. And I know in just dealing with my wife, it's a sting because there's something that even though you, you're holy, perhaps, like Elizabeth, there's something missing, perhaps, that you're, you feel maybe you're not holy woman because that's a message from the culture. I don't think it's the truth, and I don't presume to know how that feels, but I will tell you that there is a cultural message in the time of Zechariah and Elizabeth, and if you've been around and heard about the New Testament world, you would have heard that women who couldn't conceive were not considered blessed by God. They were not considered blessed. Luke tells us they're righteous and blameless, 
But the women in Elizabeth's village and area told her she must have done something wrong told her that she was forsaken by God, told her because she was barren, it was because someone sinned. This was the pervading cultural narrative that was given to Elizabeth. And not only was she not able to conceive with Zechariah or Zechariah not able to conceive with her, Luke tells us insult to injury, they're very old. So even if they wanted to, they couldn't. And they look and we look and Luke sets it up and says, this looks like a pretty difficult, hopeless situation. And so what's tough about this and what's tough about women today is that you do the right things, you pray the right things, and you wait and wait and wait and wait. There are people close to us in our family, very close to us in our family, who have waited a decade, 12 years, other amounts of years. Some have had kids, some haven't. I'm not presuming to speak on that save for this. God is full of surprises and God is also full of love and comfort to meet us exactly where we are. And so we shouldn't look and take all the narratives of the culture and say, you're not blessed or you deserve this or you deserve that. We must always find our hope and our identity in Jesus who is our living and enduring hope, the object of our hope. And so this Luke sets up is not uh, foreign to any of us who've read our Bibles, people like Abraham and Sarah. And so he sets this stage, and it's a family that looks like they're in a pretty tough situation. So let's look in verse 8. I told you Zechariah was a priest. Here's what it looks like when he's on the clock. Verse 8. Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty, and he was serving as priest before God. I told you there's 24 divisions, right? I told you there was a lot of priests in one temple. Here's what happened. Zechariah spent 50 weeks of his year living where he lived, being a teacher and a respected leader in his community, teaching and carrying out different uh, just priestly duties there. But he lived away from the temple. And so these divisions, what they would do is they had these priests on a rotation And so Zechariah's rotation would be twice a year for a week at a time. So when his number gets called, he goes on up with the other folks in his division and he goes into the temple and he's going to perform these priestly duties. And so for him, he's walking in and he's doing his priestly job, his function, like any of us. Whatever our job is, we get up Monday, we punch the clock, and we do the same thing. We have routines, and we have weeks, and we keep on, and we keep on, and we keep on. And so now, we look not just at this family unit, this Zechariah, Elizabeth, but we can expand out and we see a whole people in need of hope. Because as Zechariah goes to the temple, he goes to the temple that was called the second temple. Because the first temple was racked and done and obliterated. And so when God's people got kicked out of the land and scattered, many of them returned and they built another temple, but it just wasn't the same. But for centuries, they kept going, they kept going, they kept serving, they kept doing sacrifices, but they never really returned, even though they had a temple to worship. They never really returned fully because they were still being ruled over by oppressors. And in Zechariah's day, he'd leave his home and he'd go down to the temple, which was the second temple. 
and he would go down and perform the same sacrifices that God's people had performed for centuries. But he was waiting. His people were waiting, doing the same thing that God told them every single day, every single day, waiting, 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 waiting. But they were also waiting for the coming of the king who would extend his gracious reign and usurp the reign of Rome and all these other pretend oppressors. So you've got a guy, Zechariah, and his wife in need of hope, but they represent really a whole group of people in hope. So Zechariah is doing what a priest did during one or two of the daily prayer services, and everything was business as usual until look at verse 9. Zechariah, an old man, a priest, all of a sudden was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. I told you there are lots of priests, right? This was a specific, beautiful honor because what they would do is of these thousands of priests, they would cast lots and the lot would fall on one priest who got to go in and partake in the special privilege of going into the inner court, the inner place of the temple and burn incense before the Lord. This is what was prescribed way back in Exodus, way back in the law, but few priests would ever get to do this, maybe once in their lifetime. This is a beautiful honor, this is a beautiful privilege, and so already Luke is setting up, okay, something's different, something's different, something's different. Because for Zechariah, who had walked in darkness, who gets his week of the year, who gets his uh, place of privilege, and then all of a sudden he gets to burn the incense. So here's what he does. He goes into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. In verse 10, when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Zechariah is in the inner sanctum, uh, sanctum, in the inner part of the temple, and on the outer side, the temple was arranged in concentric circles, and just outside, all the people were doing what they do every day, which is praying, waiting. God restore the kingdom. But the lot falls on Zechariah. And so we see this family who's waiting for a kid who never came. We see a people waiting for a Messiah who's yet to come. And suddenly, suddenly, verse 11. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. Okay, imagine that. Like we just read it because we know about angels and we have them on our Christmas trees. This is a big deal for you. Imagine you're a priest and you're walking in and there's this massive curtain and you walk in and it's just you by yourself and it's like the greatest moment of your life and then an angel comes, an angel. Like you're still looking at me like blank stares. I don't know how to tell you this any different. You're sitting in a room by yourself and then another person appears who didn't walk in there. This is wild. This is crazy. But we just read the Christian stuff and we say, what? Yeah, sure, an angel because we know about angels. So what does he do? Zechariah saw him and he was startled and was gripped with fear. Yes, Luke didn't tell us he wet himself, but dude, are you serious? I get scared when like I turn around and Amy's behind me. Are you kidding me, an angel? He's gripped with fear. He's like, dude, are you gonna mess up this most important part of my priestly life and how did you get in here? But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid. That's because that's what angels always say, because people are always afraid. He says, don't be afraid, Zechariah. Watch, your prayer has been heard. Here's a people 
who are hopeless, who are old and can't conceive. Here's Elizabeth who's been mocked in her community. Here's Zechariah going through all the things like what am I not doing right? What am I not doing right? And they've prayed and they've prayed and they've waited and they've waited and they've waited. And how would you feel if someone said, on behalf of God, your prayer has been heard. Your prayer has been heard. Wake up to this. We can laugh about the angel appearing, but what life-giving words your prayer has been heard. And I guarantee you at that moment, Zechariah knew exactly which prayer he was talking about. I'm telling you, he did. Because he probably carried that waiting, that longing with him every day of his life. Just like you carry that waiting and longing every day of your life. God, end it. God, help this. God, heal this. What comfort. Your prayer has been heard. But don't forget the two things that Luke told us earlier. He was so righteous and faithful and obeyed his God regardless of what happened. And he was very, very old. How long do you think he had been praying? How long the same words came out of his mouth? How many times through tears? How many times through screams of anger? Who knows? But all we know is that God surprised him in the most unlikely place the most unlikely time, the most inopportune time because this was the biggest part of his duty as a priest. He says, your prayer has been heard. He says, Zechariah, you've been waiting in deep darkness so that's why you didn't see it coming. And God loves, I think, to surprise us in the dark. That's why I think in the 23rd Psalm we have Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, right? I will fear no evil. I don't think God is a God who wants to sit there and slap bumper stickers on the walls next to you in the valley of the shadow. I don't think he delights in watching you grope in the darkness. But I do think he delights in surprising you when you least expect it, right in the face of your deepest despair, shining light because light has the most effect, of course, when it's dark. I think God delights in telling us your prayer has been heard. I think he delights in rescuing Jonah as soon as he cries right before death, boom, out of the waves. I think that's how God is like. He's a God of love who wants to rescue us, provided we keep calling, keep calling, keep calling. And he'll surprise us. And he may surprise us in a way we never thought. For them, it's good news about a son. It's an answered prayer in the way they asked. He says, your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. And I bet he probably just stopped. The angel's gonna say all these beautiful things following that word, but I bet you it was a gut punch right there. What? She's going to bear me a what? And then the angel says, and you were to call him John. What is John going to be like? He will be a joy and delight to you. And many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He's never going to take wine or other fermented drink. 
He's going to be special. He's going to be different. He's got other things planned for him. This is a common thing. Nazarite, different vows. I don't know what exactly is going on, but what I do know exactly is going on is that John is a different kind of son. He's got a special lot in ministry for himself. He says he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. Filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to their Lord, their God. This is good news. This is exile language. This is not only just a special kid, this is a kid who will bring many people back. Prophets called people to return to the Lord. And this angel says that he will bring many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. Not only was this good news for the family in need of some hope, this is good news to the people. God does it in the same moment. Two birds, one stone. His name is John. He brings hope to Zechariah and Elizabeth. He brings hope to a people who've dwelt in a land of deep darkness. He says in verse 17, he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. Like the great prophet of old, to what? Turn the hearts of the parents of, to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. To make ready a people prepared for the Lord. What is John supposed to do? Prepare people. Make ready a people prepared for the Lord. He's a messenger of hope. He's got a ministry of preparation because God is about to act and about to do great things in a people who have waited and are hopeless. So, what's Zechariah going to say? How is he, how is he going to respond to this? He's panicked. He's fearful. What does he say? What would you say? Here's what Zechariah says in verse 18. Zechariah asked the angel, well, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. Zechariah, we can't blame him. Even though there's an angel standing right there, we can't blame him. Why? Because after waiting and waiting and waiting for so long, that hope that you had, the hope of your youth, the hope of your childbearing years perhaps, what happens is that Hope devolves into despair. And he bought the narrative, he bought the story that he and Elizabeth were done. He and Elizabeth were hopeless. So what does Gabriel do to respond to him? And we can laugh at this because the angel gives him his business card and says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I've been sent here to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. People are always asking for signs. God, if you want me to do this, give me a sign. When Jesus goes along through his ministry, they say, give us a sign. Gabriel gives this dude a sign and he didn't even ask for it. He did ask for it. He says, how can I be sure? Dude, you've got an angel telling you. It's the angel who stands before the presence of God who has been sent to tell you, congratulations, you're expecting a baby boy. You will have a boy. So, as if 
the comedy is not there yet. Luke goes on to elaborate and says, Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. What has happened to this guy? Is he dead? Did he mess up and he's trying to sweep up the incense with a dust buster? What is going on? Verse 22, when he came out, he could not speak to them. So he's sitting here. Imagine this. He's sitting there. This is the priest who's just come from the inner part of the temple. And he's miming to them. And he's probably lost all the color in his face. He's probably got angel dust on him. Not the drugs, but Gabriel dust. I just lost every one of you. All right. Why did I say that? God forgive us. Let's keep going. He's sitting there. He's mute. He's panicked. He's freaking out. And what happens? What happens? So I'll get our giggles out. They realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. For he kept making signs to them but remained unable to speak. He's pantomiming. So when the time of his service was completed, he went back home. After the week was up, he went home. Still unable to speak, right? Well, that's how Zechariah responded. That's how Gabriel responded to him. So he goes home. How is his wife, this holy and blameless and righteous woman, how will she respond? After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. Verse 25, the Lord has done this for me, she said. She didn't need an angel to tell her her prayer had been answered. She looked and saw and gave God praise and thanksgiving. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. What a gift that is. What a gift it would be that we pray that, that the scorn and the disgrace, maybe from those individuals, the family members or whatever, the scorn and disgrace, those people in your past who have fed you the narrative that you're no good, that you won't amount to anything, that you're a disgrace, that you're this, that you're fill in the blank, you know what it is, it's been on repeat for a decade in your mind and in your heart. Oh, that God would shine his light in that place of despair, that place of disgrace, that place of lost cause-ness and dispel that narrative and take away that disgrace that you have toward yourself or that others have given to you. And would we in grace say, the Lord has done this. He's done this. It's a gift from him. Because here's the deal. I told you that hope is not just blind optimism. Hope is not just blind optimism that waits for sunny days just because it's better than rainy ones. Hope is objective. Hope has an object, and it's God who keeps his promises. And look, hope is also knowing that we're not forgotten. Hope is knowing that we're not forgotten. Hope is when Elizabeth has prayed every day, every day. Hope is knowing we're not forgotten. So what happens to old Zechariah? What happens as he goes for nine months pantomiming and riding on a dry erase board? I'll tell you what happens. Look ahead. It's not on the screens. We're going to close with this. What's this guy going to say? Because he had been waiting his whole life, and now he's been waiting for nine months to speak. What's he going to say first? His baby boy is born just, be, just like God said. 
She had her baby. This is in verse 57. And they took the child on the eighth day to be circumcised according to the custom. And they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, no, he is to be called John. So somehow Zechariah relayed that information to her. And they said to her, there's no one among your relatives who has that name. She said, well, God told me. Gabriel told my husband, his name is to be John, and he is going to be a great, great person that brings people back to his God. And look, finally, what happens in verse 67. After waiting for nine months, his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesied. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he said through his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies, to enable us to serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And watch, imagine him looking at his baby boy he thought would never come, and he prophesies, filled with the Holy Spirit, these words, verse 76. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us. You see that? By which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in what? darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. Zechariah erupts in a song of hope, a prophecy of hope. Typically in the first week of Advent with hope we look at prophecy and he prophesies and speaks good news about this child. And so this Advent, Lord willing, we're going to look each week at more and more of the life of John the Baptist because his ministry is to prepare the way of the Lord who is the risen Christ, the object of our hope. And he shines on those living in darkness to a family and to a nation in the shadow of death. And he guides us, he calls us. So the question for us then as we look at hope as we look at those places of darkness in our life, will we sing like Zechariah did? Or will we devolve into despair? Will we devolve into fear? Will we devolve into those places of surely nothing good will come? Are we gonna let our vision be dictated by the darkness in front of us or the hope of the light that is to come? Because we're called to be a people of hope waiting for God's light in the face of darkness. Father, we're grateful that you're a promise keeper. We're grateful that you're a good news bringer. We're grateful that you are a light shiner. 
We're grateful for your presence. And so I ask of those people who are in the shadow, who are wrapped up in darkness, I pray that your presence would be a light and that their hope would remain steadfast because Christ in us is at least the hope of glory. So as we enter into this season of waiting, we wait for you to come quickly and to bring an end to all oppression and disease and addiction and barrenness of body and soul. And we just pray that you would create in us such a hope that comes from you. We thank you for this time together. We thank you for the light. Amen.